Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning, everyone. It's Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on that show who are experts in their fields. To the greatest extent possible, we stay away from politics. Instead, we concentrate on research, on facts, and the experience and insight of our guests to help us to arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrative solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and even national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Bruce Moreland, one of your hosts for this morning's show, and the man sitting next to me is John Olson, your other host. Climate change is an increasing part of our news diet, but depending upon which news system you live in, you're going to hear different takes on the issue of climate change. Our guest today is Professor John Englander. Professor Englander is an oceanographer, a multi-book author, an international speaker on climate change and sea level rise, sometimes abbreviated as SLR. Located in Boca Raton, Florida, John Englander frequently travels for both science and business. Multiple expeditions to Greenland and Antarctica have shown John firsthand the rapid melting of glaciers and how that water reaches the oceans. These expeditions, coupled with his broad science background in both oceanography and geology, have given him a unique perspective on planetary ecology. As as a science communicator, Professor John Englander has written popular books on sea level rise. His 2012 book, High Tide on Main Street, Rising Sea Level and the Coming Coastal Crisis, is an excellent introduction to the science of global warming and its impact on sea levels. Then his 2021 work, Moving on to higher ground, raising sea level and the path forward continues this story with new insights into what we can and cannot do as mankind comes to terms with the inevitable sea level rise. Professor John Englander, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Bruce and I are in the KYMN studios in the heart of beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. Where are you this morning? I'm home in Boca Raton, Florida. Thanks, John and Bruce. It's great to be with you. I think he got the better end of the weather <laughs> yeah. stick on that one. Yeah, yeah. It's doom and gloom outside right now here in Northfield. <laughs> so, uh, we've, <clears throat> I'm sorry, we're going to start with climate science and subsidence. So, Professor Englander, we've all heard arguments that global warming is caused by human activity, and we also have evidence that you cannot change people's minds with simple data and graphs. Instead, you need to be able to appeal to their emotions, to connect to them on the issue, and to allow them to see the truth of something in their own way. If we could, let's begin our discussion this morning with the science of climate change and sea level rise. And I'd like to discuss this issue in the context of your trip to Greenland last summer with noted New York Times columnist Brett Stevens. The article he penned after that trip brought the science of climate change into a clear perspective for him and hopefully for his readers. Can you tell us about what what Brett witnessed in Greenland? Sure, Um, and I appreciate the opportunity. So first, um, what you physically see in Greenland, you get a sense of scale. Greenland is about half the size of the United States, from Maine to Florida and from uh, the Mississippi to the Atlantic. 
Um, so when we go out on the ice sheet and plot where we are on a map, you get a sense of the incredible scale of Greenland, uh, which is highly uh, sparsely populated with just 56,000 people. It's the lowest population in the world. Um, but it's the size of the ice sheet, which is over a mile thick, actually many places more than two miles thick, and the giant glaciers, which work their way to the sea and break off and calve new icebergs. And these icebergs in Greenland are the size of a city block. In fact, Brett Stevens uh, gave me his estimate when he saw them. Of, they were more like five New York City blocks in size. I mean, things that you say, even when you say the terms and try and visualize it, it's just hard to appreciate the enormity of it. And yet when you see it in person like that and the, the endless stream of these icebergs coming out to the ocean, it does hit home in a way that just, um, you know, hearing about the melting Arctic does not. Um, which reminds me to point out something that's commonly misunderstood. Melting icebergs or glaciers uh, that spawn icebergs uh, do have an effect on sea level, but it's not the way people think. It's only when the iceberg is calved off fresh and created, in effect, from a glacier. When the glacier works its way to the to the edge of uh, Greenland and then breaks off into a new iceberg, at that moment, when the ice enters the water, it's like adding an ice cube to a glass of water and the water level does rise. But once an ice cube is floating and once an iceberg is floating in the ocean, as it melts, it doesn't have any effect on sea level. Um, you can run that experiment with a glass with ice cubes floating in it, let them melt, and the water level won't change. That's because ice is less dense than water, which is why icebergs float about 11% above the surface. So you, Greenland becomes an opportunity to absorb all that science and then to appreciate the physical scale. And finally, the point to just uh, as far as climate and ice ages, well, two more points, I guess. One is that 98% of the world's ice on land is in Greenland and Antarctica, the Alps, the Alaska, and so on, the Himalayas. Really uh, very visual and interesting, but they're really small. Greenland has enough ice that if it was all to melt, sea level would be 25 feet higher globally. So an incredible amount. That, that is a fair amount of ice. <laughs> <laughs> And, 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 you know, I'm just going to remind our, our listeners, when you first ran into Greenland in grade school, the first thing they tell you is that the map distorts the scale. But I didn't. Yes. But even with that in mind, I'm looking at your map behind you and seeing Greenland in a much more uh, scaled format. And you're right. It's a monster. The, you, you, I think we overcompensate and say, oh, it's just a little tiny place. No, it's big. Right, that's exactly right. You're you're right. When you when you flatten out the, the you know the round relatively round globe, it does distort and make things at the higher latitudes toward the poles wider. But as you say, most people have that impression that somehow Greenland is distorted, and there's some truth in that. But the the basic enormity of it is it's, it's easy to overlook. Indeed. Um, yeah. The one other thing I would just say, kind of as preamble to our our uh, program this morning is um, climate change is both natural and uh, caused by the greenhouse gases, as most people know. But just to put in perspective, the ice age cycles that we think of, that we've all heard about, even the kids' movies, the ice age, the five-part series. Um, but ice ages are natural. 
And with each ice age, as the ice sheets change size, sea level goes up and down 400 feet, 120 meters. That's been happening repeatedly every 100,000 years for millions of years. That was natural. But we are now in a different era, and that's because of changing the atmosphere with the greenhouse gases by burning fossil fuels. So I always want to acknowledge that climate change is natural, but then there are things that humans can do to change the atmosphere and the oceans in a way that actually changes climate too. This is a bit off top. Isn't it true, in fact, that by looking at the carbon in the CO2 that we can tell what percentage of it or we can get an estimate of how much of it is due to releasing carbon back out from fossil fuels or from fossil uh, sources? Is that ice cores, Bruce, that you're referring to specifically? No, I was thinking of how you know that the CO2 in the atmosphere is anthropogenic. Yeah, there's what they call fingerprinting. And there was recently an article uh, talking about better fingerprinting of where the sea level came from, how much of it came from Antarctica, how much from Greenland, how much of the CO2 came from fossil fuels. That's kind of an esoteric area of science, but certainly important. Um, I don't get into that deeply, but yes, we are getting more accurate attribution, they say, Mm -hmm. on where the sea level is rising. But here's where it gets confusing, that... At the moment, global sea level is only rising about five millimeters a year. That's about, uh, you know, a, a tenth of an inch, or a quarter of an inch, I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, it's relatively small, but it's like a drip filling the bucket, and the rate of melting is getting faster. And that's what's fooling us. And so while a quarter of an inch a year isn't important, over a decade, that's two and a half inches. And if it's accelerating, and it's going to become eventually a foot a decade, that will really get our attention. So it's that, like drip filling a bucket, uh, nonstop with with the drip rate accelerating. <laughs> that's what we need to be paying attention to. Uh, Professor Englander, we should probably uh, ground ourselves in the science a little bit before we press on with our deeper discussions on policy. Uh, if we could, let's talk about climate change, ocean warming, and glacial meltwater a little bit more. Can you please briefly explain the science behind climate change, how how the oceans have warmed? And about the difference in impact to the oceans between, well, you already sort of covered that, between melting sea ice in the Arctic Ocean itself and the ice locked up in the glaciers around the world, uh, most importantly, Greenland and Antarctica. Maybe if you just focus on the science of what is climate change and how is it impacting the atmosphere and, and the climate as a whole. Sure. We know that weather changes, like there can be a year with more hurricanes and a year with less hurricanes. That's just natural variability. That goes with the complexity of the weather system of this planet, which is driven by the ocean currents, the atmospheric currents, where the continents are uh, in terms of heat absorption. And it varies from year to year and decade to decade. We'd call that weather variability. When we talk about climate change, we're talking about a whole-scale, fundamental, averaging change, and including both the routine and the extreme events. And we, again, know that climate has changed not only over 100 years, but more if you look back to the little ice age and the medieval warm period and so on. But the bigger change that everybody, again, has recognized, even if they don't think about it, is the ice age cycles. We've had ice ages on Earth in the most recent time, 2.58 million years um, on a repeating cycle that was quite natural. And that's caused primarily by something called the Milankovitch cycle, but which is very simply the changing elliptical orbit of the Earth around the sun. And think of it like a giant summer and winter. 
So nobody would dispute that we've had ice ages, and most people may not know that we've had them every 100,000 years for millions of years, and that the last ice age peaked just 20,000 years ago. And when the ice age peaked, meaning the world was colder, that um, sea level was down 120 meters or 400 feet lower because the ice was was covering North America. Now, you know, in your part of the the country where you all are in, in Minnesota, um, but if you just think about North America, the Great Lakes are seen as kind of a geologic or geographic feature, right? Well, they were created 11,000 years ago as the last glacier was retreating. They're basically gouge marks left by the two miles of ice. And again, we don't th we, we think of the land features and, and structure as permanent, but it's a perfect example that if we'd gone back 20,000 years ago, the ice would have been over the Great Lakes and there weren't any lakes there at all, even in the, in the prior cycle. So um, glaciers have a way of reshaping the continents and creating lakes, rivers, et cetera. Um, and so that's, that's natural climate change. What we've done now is we've warmed the planet 1.2 degrees Celsius, which is about two degrees Fahrenheit, and that extra heat that's gone into the ocean is ch is causing changes to the atmosphere, atmospheric currents. We think of a jet stream or the ocean currents. Those are all changing because we've put more heat in the system. And 93% of that heat is stored in the oceans, which is the fundamental uh, force that's going to cause the melting of Greenland and Antarctic over the coming centuries. Could you talk a little bit about kind of the greenhouse gases and how they are trapping heat? Uh, just make sure we sure. are grounded in science. Sure. Thank you. Um, so carbon dioxide is this really minor gas in the atmosphere, but it was discovered over 100 years ago that carbon dioxide, even though it was invisible, absolutely transparent to light, but it traps heat. And that was demonstrated again back in the uh, early 1800s, I guess. And... Um, uh, and with with improving accuracy by many different scientists, it at the normal levels of carbon dioxide, we measure parts uh, per million. And the normal range was from 180 to 280 parts per million, and that cycled with the ice ages and the climate cycle that I just described, which was driven by the changing orbit around the sun and the amount of heat we get like a giant summer and winter that was natural climate change what's happened now is that the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere which again we know from geologic records went from about 180 to 280 parts per million it's now at 420 parts per million oh boy it gets measured accurately every day actually uh since 1952 i think it is uh by a lab in hawaii and uh, so it's 50% higher than it's been for millions of years. And that's the problem because it traps heat, as was easily demonstrated 100 years ago, very simple physics. And we're adding to carbon dioxide by burning fossil fuels way beyond the amount of emissions from volcanoes that are their natural sources. And so that's how we are changing the atmosphere, which traps more heat which is causing changes to weather patterns, including storms and wildfires and droughts and heavy rainfall. Indeed. You know that, that lab, is that the Keeling graph that comes out of that? 
Exactly. Charles David Keeling. Very good. Yes. When you look at that graph, which I do all the time in my activism in climate change, um, I I like to point out to people who claim that climate change is just volcanoes. I say, you can't even see Mount Pinatubo blowing up on that graph. Uh, Right. You can imagine that you see it, but you really can't. And by the way, as a footnote on that, too, with the uh, eruption going on over there, they had to close that lab. So we're not getting. Yes, I saw that. That's right. We're not getting the data right now, and that was beautiful data because you're in the middle of the Pacific with lots of clean wind coming in, so you get nice, well mixed atmosphere coming through your lab. Exactly. All very very important. All right. Do you have any more questions on climate change? Okay. (laughs) I I I give the talk about the the Milankovic cycles all the time. I use it in lots of uh, contexts. So, anyway. Great. In your most recent book, Moving to Higher Ground, um, and your lectures, I, I saw one of your TED Talks. It's very cool. Um, and we should put links to that in our, our website. Um, in any case, in Moving to Higher Ground, in your lectures, touch on the idea of subsist, or subsidence of coastal land. And subsidence is, if you could explain what you mean, what, what's meant by subsidence, and then sure. why it is and isn't a big factor. Sure. No, thank you. Um, so subsidence is when the land goes downward, literally, and uplift is when it goes up. We have both. And it affects the perception of sea level rise. Let's just think of it in, in the simplest sense. Um, if sea level rises a quarter of an inch a year, um, or let's say it rises an inch, and in the same period of time, the land is going down a half inch, compacting for one reason or another which we'll talk about okay that measuring sea level from that location would appear to only be a half inch because sea level was rising an inch but the land was going down so the measuring point so we have to take that into account the subsidence or uplift and locally in places like new orleans or jakarta indonesia or even um uh, norfolk virginia where the land is subsiding faster than normal okay it adds to the appearance of sea level rise but conversely, in places in the northern latitudes like Alaska and Canada and Scandinavia, where the land is actually uplifting because the ice sheets melted most recently there, and they're rebounding thousands of years later because of the ice which melted 10,000 years ago. So those places are uplifting. So that would tend to um, reduce apparent sea level rise. In fact, in Alaska, generally speaking, there is no sea level rise because the land is uplifting faster than sea level is but that'll change in about 20 years as the rate of sea level increases subsidence is caused by a couple different things it's caused by the compacting of silts at river deltas like uh, new orleans and um jakarta would be a prime example uh where they've had tremendous subsidence and therefore sea level rise in, in that huge city um it can also be from pumping water or petroleum out of the ground will accelerate the land compacting in the Gulf of Mexico, again, off New Orleans. So New Orleans has the, the, the silt coming out of the Mississippi River, which naturally compact. And then by pumping petroleum and water out of the ground, we add to that compaction. So that's why we have considerable compaction or, or subsidence in the greater New Orleans area in the Gulf of Mexico. But uh, Jakarta again where there's about 15 rivers coming down through the city and uh, lots of silt again 
and, and pumping groundwater is a big problem there. They're getting huge subsidence. In fact, it's like 10 feet, three meters of sea of um, subsidence in the past 20 or 30 years. So I, I believe they're the, the worst example of subsidence or most extreme example in the world. Uh, and so we have to adjust for subsidence or uplift when we're looking at actual sea level against a dock or marina or some other point of reference. So that, that's where we have to count on data and science to help us see things that our eyes, our eyes can't see because locally we're getting different results. My understanding is if all the ice on Greenland goes into the ocean, not only will the, the, the sea level locally will appear to go down because the land will be rising so fast. <laughs> Yeah, that's you're right, but I think you know that gets confusing. Actually, it's pretty esoteric, and uh, you, but it's correct. There are articles which have talked about that as Greenland melts and its meltwater goes all over the world, that Greenland actually will rise up a little bit. So, it, yeah, there, that's a pretty esoteric effect, and it's we're talking about over centuries. So we haven't talked too much about what what makes the sea level rise are two things: we add more water and we warm up the water we have. Can you give me an, is there any kind of a equation that gives you an estimate of which of those is a bigger factor? No, I'm, thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, it's changing. See, if we look back in the last century, the last hundred years, just round figures, okay, we've had about 10 inches of global average sea level rise, about 20 centimeters. Um, sorry, uh, no, that's right. Um, <laughs> And uh, about half of that's come from thermal expansion of seawater as we've warmed the oceans by trapping more heat in the oceans from the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. The warming oceans slightly expand, accounting for about half the apparent sea level rise. Okay. But the melting of Greenland and Antarctica and the other glaciers in the world, which adds volume to the ocean, that's been accelerating. And looking ahead, it's going to be different than looking backward. Uh, in other words, in the last century, about half the global sea level rise has come from uh, thermal expansion of seawater as the oceans warm. But in the coming century, if we get five or 10 feet of sea level rise because of melting ice, thermal expansion will still only probably be less than a foot. So we this is where the past may not allow us to see the future very well. The rate of warming has now gotten to the point where we're melting the ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica so far above normal, and at such an accelerating rate that we can safely say that the melting of that ice on land will become a much bigger factor than the thermal expansion of seawater. Oh, boy. Okay, well, I have a follow-up question then. There was a report on physics.org titled Researchers Detect the First Definitive Proof of Elusive Sea Level Fingerprints. Uh, is this the smoking gun that only statskeets can uh, appreciate or is there something in there? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned a moment ago, I mean, what they call fingerprinting, just deciding where the water came from at a, mm -hmm. a molecular level with fingerprints by different isotopes is interesting to scientists, but figuring out how much came from Antarctica and Greenland and how much came from the Alps and Alaska uh, is pretty much for science geeks. Okay, uh, <laughs> we, I don't I don't think for most of us, even even including myself, it matters that much. What we do know 
from the satellite measurements of the size of the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheet. We can measure almost almost on a daily basis by the GRACE satellites that can that can literally sense the mass of the ice all over the world mm -hmm. within a 10-day period. That gives us a really good, consistent uh, measurement tool to see how Greenland and Antarctica are melting. And, and I would put, you know, um, that as the kind of first level of information in terms of trends um, rather than looking for fingerprints and historical, you know, uh, attributions of where something comes from. Right. Uh, we, we can see in real time now through the GRACE satellites, which have been up there since 2002. So we have a good 20 years of data that's very consistent by the same technology that literally just measures the mass of ice on land all over the world. And that's, to me, that's even better than the, than, than the fingerprinting. Very cool, yeah. And and uh, the press, of course, grabs whatever headline they'd like to make out of it. And, and hopefully they're doing a good job with that one. Um, I was wondering if uh, you can give us a, you've kind of talked a little bit about time and, you know, two and a half million years for the Ice Age and 100,000 years for the Milankovitch cycle uh, glaciation periods. Um, I was wondering if you give a kind of a overall time sense in short, medium, and long-term considerations for climate change. Is there any observation about how time is playing in this? Well, it's accelerating. And again, it's because if you look at the increase in greenhouse gases and the global average uh, atmospheric temperature, it's accelerating. Now, the efforts at the moment to try and reduce the greenhouse gas emissions and carbon dioxide and take it out of the atmosphere, those are all interesting and worthwhile. But the fact is, um, as he said, since uh, Keeling began his measurements in Hawaii in the 1950s, that and you've seen that graph and they're easily easily found um, and they're extreme precision about the carbon dioxide percentage. We can see the annual up and down as the seasons change and then we can see that it's part of the you know the 70 year history now that we've been measuring every day. Mm -hmm. But we can compare that to the, the CO2 record that's locked up in, in uh, deep sea sediments and, and in the Greenland ice sheet that we decode by doing ice cores and the air bubbles are trapped in the ice sheets and we can measure the carbon dioxide levels going back 140,000 years in Greenland and 800,000 years in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. So we have lots of good measurements that, that track how carbon dioxide and temperatures have changed. And the problem is they're accelerating as we burn more and more fossil fuels. Um, and it's to the point where it's 50% higher than it was at any point in millions of years. And that has now translated into about two degrees Fahrenheit, a little over a degree Celsius of higher average global temperatures. And in a warmer planet, we're going to have less ice on land and higher sea level. I have to say, you've at least twice now channeled uh, Yogi Berra's famous <laughs> phrase that the future ain't what it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So, um, John, do you want to... Maybe yeah, so uh, you're listening to Public Policy this week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm John Olson, and my co-host, Bruce Marlin, and I are talking with Professor John Englander about sea level rise and climate change. So, your, your books and lectures indicate something on the level of six to eight feet of global sea level rise before the end of this century. That's like... 80 years away now, uh, which means it's within the easy lifetime of children born today. 
not easy, but at least so as a grandparent or to all those grandparents out there, I'm, this is really important then, uh, more so than, than if I were just worried about myself being an old geezer. Right. So I often right. tell my friends that truth is actually an estimate in science. Uh, truth or facts are estimates with confidence intervals and sample sizes and everything like that. Obviously, we only have one sample size in some sense. We only have one planet. There is no planet B. And uh, that, by the way, comes from my Rotary Club. Uh, we use that all the time. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, is it a fair question to ask about the confidence intervals of these estimates? I mean, are they tiny or are they huge? Are we talking, what are we talking about? Great question. So if we look back at geologic history, not a projection, not a model, we know that, again, there have been ice ages in the most recent period, two and a half, two point five eight million years. That's just simple, the, the Pleistocene, if you will. Um, you know, the Jurassic era, the dinosaurs, that's like, 60 or 80 or 100 million years ago but we're talking about the ice age cycles going back two and a half million years and we do know without any question that sea level has gone up and down 400 feet roughly 390 feet to be more precise but i round things off to make it easy 400 feet 120 meters with each of those ice age cycles every hundred thousand years and global average temperature has changed about five degrees celsius or nine degrees fahrenheit same thing and during those same periods of time as global temperature change. And if you divide the height of the ocean change over a 100,000 year cycle by the temperature change, we get about 24 meters per degree Celsius or 35 feet per degree Fahrenheit. And so we we can, uh, again, it, our perception of history may go back centuries or a couple of thousand years to biblical times if you will the christian era or back to the um you know the older calendars the chinese and mayan and jewish calendars of of uh, five thousand years but uh eleven thousand years ago sea level was rising at the rate of about 15 feet a century so we know this has happened naturally before and um we can see that the ratio of sea level change to to uh, global average temperature change, as I say, is about 20 meters per degree Celsius or 35 feet per degree Fahrenheit. So the problem is we've already warmed 1.2 degrees Celsius, about 2 degrees Fahrenheit. That means that sometime over the next several centuries, we are almost certainly going to get tens of feet of sea level rise. That's hard to imagine because we've always thought in our human culture, uh, civilization, that sea level was kind of sea level. We measured from it as if it was a, a you know, a datum, a, a reference point, and that the coastline was re- relatively permanent except for coastal erosion. Well, it turns out that sea level and the coastline have only been stable for about 6,000 years, which happens <laughs> oh. to be human civilization, more or less. And it's why we have trouble believing they're going to change greatly. So while, Bruce, we, you know, I agree with you, it's interesting to, and problematic to think about the world our kids and grandkids will inherit. We also have to be good scientists and realize that to some degree we were fooled because of this natural pattern of sea level that was ending the 20,000-year up cycle, as I explain in my book, and about to enter the 80,000-year down cycle, and has now changed direction because of our warming the atmosphere. So it does seem confusing. 
But actually, as I'm sure you agree, the pieces all fit together. So we need to realize that climates change naturally and sea levels changed with it. We've now warmed the planet a couple of degrees Fahrenheit. That means that sea level is going to be higher. To your question of our confidence interval, I guess this is a long-winded answer to your question. You know, the confidence of how quickly it will rise. It's impossible to predict the melt rate of Greenland and Antarctica, just like it's impossible to predict the pandemic or, or the next earthquake in San Francisco or the next mudslide on the Pacific Coast Highway or when the Alps will have an avalanche. It's impossible to predict any of those things accurately. If we have enough examples, we can statistically correlate and project with some confidence statistically if we have a big enough sample size, which is usually 30 or more. The problem is we only have one sample here. Yeah. The Earth's history with glaciers and ice sheets, is we have a sample of one, and you can't extrapolate statistically from that. Again, all we know is that we're seeing these giant glaciers like Jakobshavn or Kangia in Greenland and Thwaites in Antarctica melting faster and faster, and all of our advanced telemetry and satellite data and radar, ice-penetrating radar, is showing us these giant caverns and giant streams of meltwater under the ice sheet. Um, and all the evidence is, is correlating that this is happening faster and faster. So to your question, long-winded answer, but to your question, I say now that we should plan on 5 to 10 feet of seal rise in the next 100 years. That's an estimate. Um, I have pretty high confidence in that, but you know, if we do all the right things and slow the warming and get off fossil fuels really quickly, and this new fusion process proves practical soon, which I doubt, um, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe we can slow the sea level rise in the next century to uh, three feet. Uh, I doubt that, but it's possible. Uh, I would say that that's the best case. But if we keep burning all the fossil fuels, particularly the tar sands and coal and so on, and just let the planet get warmer and warmer, we could have more than eight or 10 feet of seal rise. Uh, I, I don't have a magic uh, you know, ball that will tell me the answer anybody, any more than anybody does. But having been to Antarctic and Greenland many times and studied this for decades, uh, too, many, too many decades actually, I, I put high confidence in five to 10 feet as a good planning um, bookends, if you will, you know, what could happen. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it depends on what we do as a global population in the next couple of decades. But things are accelerating, and we don't have any time to waste to slow the warming. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we should prepare for rising sea level as a policy issue, the focus of this program, really to talk about what is our policy in terms of as as houses and coastal areas all over the United States and the world flood more and more often, should governments be buying people out of their houses? Should we be offering cheap flood insurance or should we phase out flood insurance so that people look at the full risk of building in the coast and that banks have to understand when they give a 30-year mortgage what the risk is? Do, how do we affect a, a different way of looking at things in the coming decades? That's what's important to me because the world is going to change regardless of our politics, frankly, regardless of our policies or, or semi-regardless, we can affect change a little bit and we need to work hard at that. But we also have to recognize that the sea is going to rise as the ice continues to melt for many decades in the future. I have to say, remind our listeners, you're, you're in Boca Raton, Florida. 
Yes. <laughs> I believe that's ground zero for climate change, sea level rise impact. Um, we well, to- yes and no. You know, I'm, thank you for pointing that out. So my house is two miles inland from the ocean. It's 11 feet above sea level. Okay. Um, there's no risk in the next 50 years of me seeing the ocean from my house. Um, you know, we think of Florida as a flat state, and there are parts of it, the Florida Keys and Miami and Fort Lauderdale, that uh, uh, up to Jacksonville, there are places that are particularly flat relatively. But Orlando, everybody's aware of that is, you know, the center of the state, that's 80 feet above sea level. The state capital is 200, and Tallahassee is 200 feet above sea level. So it's a, I'm glad you brought it up, but I have no problem explaining why I live in particularly <laughs> the Boca Raton, um, you know, for the next 10, 20 years. Um, there's no risk of sea level rising here. Right. And and you mentioned banks. A, a good banker will look at your data and say, yeah, this is a safe 30-year loan. <clears throat> I wonder if people on the coast closer to the water are having trouble with the banks not wanting to give them long-term loans. Great question. And there is evidence that the banking community is concerned about increasing flood risk. And the flood risk is a combination of more severe rain, which we are getting as the ocean, the warmer oceans evaporate more and that greater moisture in the air comes down as rain or snow. And we're getting these huge deluge rains and snowfalls, as well as drought periods and high temperature periods and fires. All these things are happening on a warmer planet. And the bankers are noticing the problems with increased flooding and it, it scares them and it's getting into the reinsurance community. And, uh, as you, as you suggested, people are starting to wonder um, if it's smart to give 30 years loans in low-lying coastal areas that are vulnerable. And there are places where that's becoming an issue. Well, that's interesting. You, you mentioned insurance companies. My insurance company is a military-affiliated company, so it's mm-hmm. a fraternal type. You know, I'm a stockholder as well as a, a client of the company. And they actually sent us a letter saying that we they wished that so many military people would quit retiring to Florida because they were seeing increased insurance costs. And wow. Yeah, it was kind of an interesting. I wish I had kept the letter. <clears throat> when I received it, I didn't realize I was going to be an activist on climate change <laughs> and a conservative activist at that. So I would have really loved to have kept that letter because I can yeah. always point to an industry that's making real dollar bets on what's happening, and they can't pay play politics they have to play statistics so which which almost yeah yeah. and you know i'm glad you brought that up because as you may remember in my book when i talk about insurance i talk about one of the problems we have a mismatch because we we buy insurance year by year Mm -hmm. um you know and in the states there's the issue of the national flood insurance program which is effectively subsidized but regardless all over the world we we typically buy insurance year by year where mortgage or financing is often done 30 years as as again you noted and the mm-hmm. problem is so they may re- for a bank to loan you x hundred thousand dollars to buy a house they may say you have to have appropriate insurance but nobody will quote you the price of insurance 10 years from now let alone 30 years from now right <laughs> so insurance may not be available or it may not be affordable and and that's another place the banks are just beginning to start to think about the fact that they're giving you, you know, $500,000 to buy a house mm-hmm. over 30 years and requiring that you have insurance, but nobody will give you a 30-year insurance policy. 
Right. Oh man, we're in a bind there. I can see that already. <laughs> I've 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 put on my second fifty-year roof in, in the last two uh, six years. So wow. Yeah, hail damage in Minnesota is a huge insurance risk, and wow, it's it's that bad. Yeah, uh, it comes through and punches holes in cars and windows and everything. So, mm. all right. So can't we, I'm going to ask a, a leading question here. Can't we just take the Dutch solution and wall off a coastal city like Miami? And I know the yeah, reason, great, yeah, get it. why can't we do that? Great question. So uh, the Netherlands has been reclaiming land from the ocean for a thousand years, going back to the windmills, pre-electric. And uh, a lot of their land is about a third of their country. The Netherlands is below sea level. So they're very good at, at reclaiming land, this fertile, rich uh, soils from the silts that have come down from the rivers, et cetera. Um, and that's, that's what the Netherlands are. And um, so they, they've perfected seawalls and pumping, if you will. But then the big change event in the Netherlands was February 1st, 1953, that night, a, a sudden storm cropped up in the North Sea and it it crashed um, or broke the seawalls, and 1,835 people died that night, many in their sleep. And um, the, the Dutch said, never again, we need to engineer so this wouldn't happen. And they created the Delta Works program. Oh, by the way, there were also some deaths in, the UK, in, in uh, England and in Belgium from that same storm that night. And uh, But back to the Netherlands. So the Dutch... Uh, had a commission and came out with this Delta Works program, and it was a, a much stronger coastal defense against storm surge, and it included higher coastal barriers, and there are two different big engineering systems, uh, the Oosterschelde, um, some sluice gates that would come down, and then the big, you've, you've seen those two big harbor gates uh, in Rotterdam that, that look like uh, the, these semicircular almost like an Eiffel Tower on its side, they say, in terms of scale. And that Maslant carrying these big harbor gates that close in Rotterdam Harbor to keep out a flood surge from a storm, all that was pretty well and good. But when they designed all that, coming out of that storm in 1953, and based upon their thousand years of hydrologic expertise, um, they said, we should allow for sea rise. And they allowed for 30 centimeters, which is a foot of sea level rise this century. <laughs> they now know that that's inadequate and that they should have planned for two or three meters, six, you know, six or 10 feet. And so the problem is, uh, while we perceive that they have coastal defense figured out, the truth is they're a perfect example that you have to know what you're designing for. And their whole system was designed for the, the worst storm that you can imagine and um, the river flooding coming down from Europe, the Rhine, the Shelda, and the Meuse rivers coming together there in the Netherlands, and then also allowing for a foot for sea level rise. But now that's totally inadequate because we, we now even, not even, the Dutch are as certainly on the forefront of saying, wow, if we have five or 10 feet of sea level rise this century, all bets are off. We need to totally rethink this engineering and what we can protect. Uh, so, John, I have a couple of follow-up questions. That's a great uh, example of what's happening in the Netherlands and, and the fact that they're rethinking all of their engineering. Uh, right there in Florida, not far from where you are, Miami has embarked on about a $400 million effort uh, to raise their roads about two to three feet. 
uh, and they're installing some 80 pumping stations to deal with uh, tidal infiltration to try and keep uh, keep the ocean out of uh, the city of Miami. Uh, the Naval Academy, U.S. Naval Academy, where I uh, graduated from in Annapolis uh, back in 1990, they just broke ground on a new seawall that they think is going to hold back the ocean as sea level rises. I think that what this getting this get, is getting us to is sort of a discussion about the impact on coastal communities and how much money should we be spending on trying to hold back the seas as opposed to the title of your book, which is Moving to Higher Ground. <laughs> uh, what, what is the better solution here? Uh, I mean, what, what do you think? What have your studies indicated? Well, you know, there's both the, the, the physical reality of how high is the ocean and how does that uh, work with the thermal expansion of seawater and the and the heavier rainfall and all the kind of flooding events um there's that um it's it's taking us a while to assimilate change right because we like the coast where it is we like cities like miami you know with their booming real estate and and you know i mean billions or hundreds of billions of dollars of of new construction um and people love to come there because of the weather and it's going to take decades for change uh, because we change slowly actually i mean not technology technology changes fast but us us seeing the world where it is and liking to vacation in different places not just florida the bahamas uh, the cayman islands whatever out in the pacific to the maldives we have our habits and culture that don't change year to year uh, change over decades or centuries and we need to um we need to realize the world is changing for the first time in in at, on this scale where the coastlines are going to change um as you know from my book i in moving to higher ground i also try and see the glass half full and i'm very honest that um it's a it's a stretch it's something i do purposefully to say what is the good signs here well the fact is we are going to move inland or raise things or put things on floats we are going to we have to respond to the oceans rising which is going to accelerate and I think get to an exponential rate of growth, just like the pandemic surprised us. But um, there's opportunities because if we get our heads around that sea level is going to be eventually 50 feet higher or so, um, even if we do slow the warming, there's time to design and build new infrastructure all over the world. And we're going to spend trillions of dollars doing that. And the people who can see the future and look to the horizon and plan ahead, just like um, cars, you know, change buggy whips, as they say, <laughs> and created the whole culture of roads and, and everything that goes with it, uh, motels and so on, that who would have thought of that? And then the electronics era that we're in, you know, in, in our generation. But this world with higher sea level is coming. And it's either the worst thing we can imagine, and that's, certainly a valid position. But when we realize that it's happened before, the last time sea level was higher was 122,000 years ago. No human impact at that point, um, although it's believed humans were around. But regardless, 122,000 years ago, sea level was 25 feet higher than it is now. So even without our impact, we should be planning for the last high watermark, recognizing that sea level goes through this up and down 400 year cycle or sorry, 400 foot cycle every 100,000 years. Right. So there, is it disruptive? Yes. Is it disturbing? Yes. Would we like to reverse everything we've done to the planet ecologically and, you know, environmentally and uh, 
species extinction and things like that, that would be wonderful. But regardless, <laughs> science now shows us with absolute clarity that sea level has been 25 feet higher. In fact, it's been 75 feet higher. Um, if we melt all the ice, it'll be 212 feet higher. And its sea level has been 400 feet lower repeatedly. So with that information, we have something that's maybe disturbing and maybe imprecise in terms of probability, as you talk about, but is certain. And we can learn from the past. And as we wake up to it, and I do believe within the next generation, the next 20 or 30 years, that the clarity of this and getting over the political side and the nonsense of thinking, you know, that this is either a hoax or that uh, we can simply stop this quickly and put everything back to where it was 50 years ago, that there's going to be great opportunity. And, and it's going to be our biggest challenge ever in terms of adaptation. That is sea level being, let's say, 10 feet higher. But there will also be great opportunity for those that um, soberly look at the facts and start thinking about the future. You guys up there in Minnesota are well positioned. <laughs> I think we're a thousand. So you're, feet. you're in the vanguard. Yeah, we're um, a thousand feet above sea level. So <laughs> I feel. But like you so. know, even back to the Great Lakes. In fact, it's a great opportunity. Most people look at the Great Lakes and assume that they're sea level. As you probably know, they're you know the they go from 250 feet up to about 600 feet above sea level mm -hmm. between the five Great Lakes. And again, they were only created 11,000 years ago, so they're really young geologically speaking. But the Great Lakes are independent of sea level. They come from rainfall and glacial melt is what feeds the Great Lakes and the the, the aquifers and so on. But the Great Lakes levels changing. Of course, they're indirectly attached to the Mississippi and and the whole river system in the center of the country. Um, we're, seeing, we're seeing problems in the Mississippi where water levels are too low and vessels can't pass. Yeah. But over the coming decades, we're going to be relying more on river uh, shipping and within the Great Lakes, um, you know, out through the locks, the, I think it's a dozen locks between uh, Lake Erie and, and uh, um, the Atlantic Ocean, mm -hmm. the St. Lawrence Seaway. So patterns are going to change. And some people are going to look at those and they're going to figure out ways to be better positioned for the future. Just as people did 100 years ago, planning on the highway system and, you know, our cars and what does that mean? And we need to, um, you know, we need to try and reduce our damaging impact, use technology to solve problems, but also out of our growing awareness and education to the reality, in this case of sea level rising and the need to move to higher ground, um, wake up to that and see it as an opportunity. Okay. Well, I'm going to take a quick break here to remind our listeners that they're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Bruce Moreland, and alongside is my co-host, John Olson, and we are talking with Professor John Englander about sea level rise and climate change. Okay, I, the, the part of the show is policy, and I'm going to tell you that I'm a planning commissioner uh, for two local jurisdictions, and as a conservative, I tend to be the voice of the future ain't what it used to be, more often okay. than you'd expect. And 
I uh, I like to base my personal decision making on science and facts, and I'm, I'm pretty hard on some of the stuff that comes across the table there. But I have to ask you, that is the big problem. I mean, we have a case in 2012 where North Carolina tried to outlaw the use of climate change and sea level rise. We have recent efforts uh, to disallow that. We have the Dutch example that only used 30 centimeters. I can imagine that there were people in the room that said, no, you can't plan on five feet of sea level rise. First of all, we're metric, and second, we'll buy 30 <laughs> centimeters, but no more. Um, so that's the question. What policy recommendations would you make? Because you're, you're a science communicator. You know the, the, the failing of just going to the whiteboard. As much as, as a mathematician, I like to go to the whiteboard. But you, you've been there. You know what communication is about. Uh, what, would you, what kind of policy recommendations would you make to federal, state, and local policymakers? Well, uh, great question and not an easy answer, of course. Uh, first is I, I recommend we think short, medium, and long term. We do that you know, intuitively planning for our retirement or our kids' education or uh, just our, our phases of life, you know, as we go up to our 70s, 80s, or 90s, or whatever, we think of short, medium, and long term. And I, I think we should think of the world that way and our planning that way. And, and uh, building codes are not done that way right now, or zoning. I mean, we don't say we're going to do something for 10 or 20 years, but we're going to look ahead 30 years or 100 years. We just have one number right now. And so, the, and the number is based upon the past. And so, the first thing I would recommend for planning is think about the world uh, in the next decade by mid-century, 30 years from now, and then end of century or 100 years from now, which would be the year 2122, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and that short, medium, long-term does something magical. It, it allows us to think differently about the planning for 30 years from now for our kids and grandkids and our legacy from what we need to do today, but also allows us to say the world will be different in those time frames. okay? So it's a, it's a, it's a construct or concept to say, the future will not be like the past. And even looking to the future, we should think in phases. And that really helps, okay? The second is to start with um, sea level in particular. Uh, but when you think about, as I say, the river levels in the Mississippi or the Missouri up there, not too far from where you all are to the Great Lakes, um, realize that the melting glaciers and the changing water levels, even inland, it's going to be a changed planet. I mean, we're going to have high, you know, there are places we won't be living because of wildfire risk. There's places where it's just too hot. There's places where there's just too much rain and, and uh, flooding. Um, we're going to rethink where we live on this planet in the coming generation, the next 30 years. And I think, again, that short, medium, long term really helps. Sea level's unique because even though most people assume that it can't change much, but even if they've heard it can change quite a few feet, they may wrongly think that by driving an electric car or putting solar panels on the roof that they can stop sea level rising in Florida, which, they, which those things are not connected, by the way. Mm. Um, <laughs> in other words, so um, as we articulate this and put it in plain English, I mean, the scientific community, unfortunately, often doesn't communicate well. It uses far too geeky technical language or jargon um, and uh, doesn't think about how do people process information, the average person. That's what I try and do is to you know, explain the science without anything technical and just use analogies and stories. And other people can do this. In fact, you know, in my book, I, I give you resources to do it. And 
people can get a slide set uh, of my slides, slides at johnenglander.net. Hmm. And there's about a dozen slides there. You, you can not only use that for yourself, but use it to teach others. As I conclude, not to give the, the punchline of my second book away, but the movie on higher ground, the biggest thing we can do is educate others because most people are ignorant about this. And that's something that anybody can do, whether they're a 10 year old or a grandma, okay, is to learn, which is what they're doing, hopefully listening to your show today. Um, read a book, whether it's mine or one of the other very good books out there. And then explain this to others because there's so much misinformation and politics and you know uh, polarization on this. And as Brett Spector, uh, you mentioned Brett Stevens, who's a good conservative columnist, I mean, highly regarded New York Times, former Wall Street Journal, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist. He wasn't sure about this. And um, after I, four years ago, I signed the petition to get him fired because I thought he was a climate denier. But um, <laughs> after that, I contacted him and started reading his articles and liked his articles. And uh, we began a dialogue. And I said to him, let's you know, come to Greenland with me. And he came to Greenland and it opened his eyes. And he's a very rigorous thinker and very smart guy. I think he's got a photographic memory. Um, and he spent five days in Greenland with me and he wrote that huge article in the New York Times, which uh, has opened a lot of other people's eyes. So I think that's what we all need to do. Well, real quickly, I, I just have to uh, tell, uh, point out that the issue of climate change is a purity test for our political parties. And if you don't toe the line on that issue within your party, whether it's the blue or the red party, uh, you get, I've, I myself have been chased off the stage when I was talking, I was running for office one time. It was not fun, but I, I think it's, I think it's changing Bruce. I mean, I don't, in fact, I gave a talk in Wisconsin, not far from you uh, six months ago and stuff. And, and I, I, I from my experience there, even with a, was with a uh, construction company actually, but who does a lot of water uh, construction, mm -hmm. maritime stuff. Um, but I think we're at a point of change. I think less people push back on climate change to whether greenhouse gases and humans cause it. That's still a trigger because that implies telling us what kind of cars we can drive or not. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what on the right, okay, becomes a trigger point. And if you let that go, and because I, I even heard from a, a staunch conservative just the other day, and I'm pretty neutral politically, that, um, you know, that th there's no question sea levels rising and climate's changing. The question is, how much is it human versus volcano volcanoes in terms of, you know, the, 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 the stimulus? OK, and, and, and what's what's pushing it? And if you don't. You know, if, if you let people decide how they're going to embrace this, because this is a this is a change of attitude, just like gay marriage or abortions or things which are very incendiary issues, we know. OK, this is an incendiary issue, as you said, but I think it's changing and people are not denying it's happening. It's are, are we the cause of it or not? But I think you can get into it at different levels. Because what's happening around the world, from the floods in Pakistan to the floods in Kentucky to China to India, you know, they're killing people up in the mountains of the Himalayas. Okay, the rainfall patterns are changing. It's raising, it's raining on the top of Greenland. It never, it's never rained there before. Okay, <laughs> oh, up, no. up high on the Greenland ice sheet, oh, yeah. uh, it's dry. Um, it's rain now. So the yeah. world's changing, and I, I think it's just a matter of giving people some space to not 
uh, agree that the United Nations to tell them whether they can drive a Hummer or not, you know, if that's the perception or the Washington DC that which is people feel a sense of freedom and, and losing, you know, their freedom. Yeah. But talk about let's look at the wildfires and, you know, and all the other effects, the droughts, the floods, the rains, the storms, the sea level rise. People say, oh, yeah, that's changing. OK. And sure, it's changed before. And as you know, from my approach is let's let's point to the natural climate change, the ice age cycles that wasn't caused by humans. That gives us credibility mm -hmm. and allows us to educate people about science long before humans were involved and becomes the basis to then get their confidence and take them down the path of where this is headed. Well, it's a, it's, I, I'm going to agree with you. I'm, as a conservative in the Conservative Caucus and Citizens Climate Lobby, we track very closely the existence of groups of uh, members of the House now that are working on climate change from the Republican side. So uh, I know that there are cracks in that facade, but sometimes at the grassroots level, they don't see those cracks. All they hear is yeah. the, the pitch. So. Uh, Professor Englander, we've covered a couple of times uh, New York Times columnist Brett Stevens accompanying you to Greenland. Uh, it's pretty clear from your description and from the article that he wrote that he really did have an epiphany about the reality of climate change and, and, and the inevitability of sea level rise. So let, let me ask you this. How, how can we gain that experience ourselves without traveling to Greenland or Antarctica? Uh, are there any really good TV documentaries that you might recommend on this subject you know, people, so people can watch it on TV and really embrace the science, the understanding? There's more. Thank you, John. There's more and more coming out. Uh, in particular, you mentioned like YouTube. I gave a talk a couple of years ago at the Royal Institution in London. That is, a, I think, one of my better uh, talks. And I besides the, the TEDx talk that you mentioned, which is quite short, like 11 minutes, but the hour-long talk at the Royal Institution, if somebody wants to, to kind of see this in an hour-long format with graphics, I'd recommend that. Um, this is the, what, third week of December 2022 at the moment. Next week, December 22nd on the Discovery Channel, there's a program called, um, oh, what is it? It's... Um, Brink of Disaster is the name of the program, and it's going to be on 9 p.m. Eastern time, I believe. And I'm in it. I haven't seen it yet. I don't know how I'll come off in it. But they filmed me in Greenland and in Miami and interviewed me extensively. So I'd recommend that, even though, again, I haven't seen it yet uh, as a show. There's more and more programs. Um, more of it's better. There's still some weak science, unfortunately. But uh, thank you for asking. And uh um, and of course, the final thing, besides reading my book, Moving to Higher Ground, which is, as I think both of you know, very easy to read. It doesn't come off with science right. geek stuff or anything technical. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do look for people who have influence or are particularly concerned or opportunity to come to Greenland. I only try and take about uh, 20 or so people a year. But if people are interested, it's on um, the Rising Seas Institute website, .org, risingseasinstitute.org. Or people can find me on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, it's an expensive trip. It's uh, very uh, exclusive, but we really go out in all those places that Brett went and talk to other experts. And um, you know, there may be somebody in your listening audience that would be able to uh, to, to make such a big commitment. Uh, Professor Englander, we just have a couple of minutes left uh, in, in the show. We want to give you the final word this morning. Uh, what didn't we ask you that we should have asked you about sea level rise and public policy challenges and opportunities? The, the floor is yours. Thank you. 
Um, one thing on Miami I didn't mention, besides the water rising and more hurricanes and things like that and more rainfall, they also have porous limestone. So one of the things is you have to look in different places about the geology. If the limestone, like with porous limestone in Miami, even if you build a seawall, the water will come up through the rock. It's like a hard sponge, if you will, with, with all the uh, porous porosity. So that's just something I forgot to say. In terms of the big picture, I encourage people you know, to get educated and ed educate others. That's the thing that everybody can do because there's so much ignorance and misunderstanding. That's that's mission one. Um, in terms of more specific things to do, I break it into three things. We need to work to slow the greenhouse gas uh, increase, which is what's trapping heat in the atmosphere, most of which is stored in the ocean, which is what's causing the ice to melt. So slowing the warming by any means to reduce the greenhouse gases like the work of citizens climate lobby and 350.org and several organizations that are advocating for a price on carbon dioxide sometimes shorthanded as price on carbon which is actually misleading because it is carbon dioxide a clear gas not black carbon but uh, a price on carbon in some fashion or carbon dioxide would be good um, to slow the warming because it would give us an economic incentive to do the right thing and, and slow the warming the second thing is prepare to be more resilient to the extreme weather from wildfires to flood rains to droughts all of these things are happening in the headlines every year now and more and more and we need to start anticipating that and designing for it to be more resilient so there's sustainability if you want to think about the energy supply and being renewable that's sustainability there's resiliency in terms of what are we seeing in the headlines year after year that we should realizes the new the new normal and then the third thing is to anticipate certain things and adapt in advance in particular to sea level rise because when you step back and look at it you know clearly it is so obvious what's going to happen and irrefutable frankly that in a warmer world we're going to go back to sea level being much higher and it could get 25 feet higher like it was 122,000 years ago but that may take centuries but seeing the trend is important and beginning to adapt. And again, just finally wrapping that all together. So there's the energy part, the greenhouse gases, there's resiliency, and then there's adapting in advance to the rising sea and changing shoreline um, and educating everybody we know about this. This is a new reality and it shouldn't be political. And, but by the way, um, even though I've taken a, a neutral stance politically, I welcome the opportunity to talk to conservatives, Bruce. I mean, I real, I, I do. And Brett was a prime example. I mean, even though most people think this is a polarized political issue, and with good reason, I think we need to get away from that and talk to people respectfully about these issues, about real estate, about sea level. And as Brett was a prime example, to the point where he had an epiphany, he's totally changed his position. I, I, uh, I'd be happy to introduce you to some other conservatives that uh, could uh, learn a lot from your, your experience. Uh, well, thank you. Talk. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Unfortunately, we have time limitations, uh, so this is where we're going to have to start bringing our show to an end. Uh, Professor John Englander, Bruce, and I want to thank you for the conversation and for your insights this morning. And I'll, I'll echo those, uh, Professor. I'm, I'm a science-based reasoner. I'm a mathematician. And uh, you convinced me that sea level rise is something that I can explain with a little help. <laughs> and, and I'm looking forward to uh, 
doing something because no matter what we do now, there are going to be some policy options that our elected leaders need to be positioned to act on. And I, I use resilience and sustainability all the time in my planning commission discussions, and I even explain the difference. So we're on the same page, I think. Thank well, you that's great, much. Bruce. And uh, um, again, let's depoliticize it. Let's let's put this in language that conservatives will embrace. And um, and I I think even as I learned in talking to to uh, to Brett Stevens, you know, I mean threatening you know getting angry and upset may seem appropriate and, and warranted but talking to people rationally and trying to find their points of self-interest i mean for a quick example i've had w one guy who was in his 80s probably uh came to me and said why should i care about this you know this isn't you even you're saying this isn't going to change in my lifetime i said do you have kids and his face changed i said do you have grandkids and he got it I, that that's why you need to get aboard on this and it has that effect um so for all of us there are ways to communicate that actually can level the playing field and sea level rising and the coastline shifting or changing um inland which is going to happen is something that becomes an interesting um you know dis dis discussion topic uh not argument even but um, something to explore with people. And if presented well, really can, can open doors and start dialogue. Professor John Englander, thank you so much for joining us today. You're the author of Moving to Higher Ground. Uh, where can people find that book, and where can they find more information about your work? Um, our website, risingseasinstitute.org, or my own website, johnenglander.net, will have information. But the book is a good place to start. It's available in many uh, bookstores, both Independence and Barnes and Noble, but certainly on Amazon, and it's available as print, Audible, and I do read the book myself, um, or the ebook version. So um, it, it it's an inexpensive book, as as you both know, it's uh, less than two hundred pages and nothing technical in it. It's uh, written conversationally, very much along the lines of what I've said to you this morning. John Angler, thank you so much for joining us. Folks, that will conclude this edition of Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, each Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. I'm Bruce Moreland. My co-host today has been John Olson. Don't forget to join us next week when we discuss the intersection of politics and religion. Yes, folks, we here at Public Policy This Week not only touch third rails, we actually bridge them. The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities, staying away from the high-volume, rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. Thank you for joining us today for Public Policy This Week. We'll be here again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Have a fantastic Friday afternoon and a superb weekend. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.